This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. I have to admit that I have sometimes found distraction in videos documenting extreme sports, whether it's free climbing, surfing mountainous waves, or leaping off a cliff in a wingsuit. I am in awe of the men and women who take these calculated risks to experience the greatest of thrills. The same can be said of photographers like Michael Clark, who photographed them. Unlike armchair viewers like myself, Michael puts himself in the middle of the action to create jaw-dropping images of what seems impossible. His photographs reflect his attention to detail as well as his talent as a visual storyteller. This is Ibarion X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, Happy New Year, first off. Happy New Year to you. It's good to talk to you. I didn't, sorry, I didn't talk to you much during the evenings with the Masters. I was so intimidated to talk to half the people there. It's... <laughs> that was one of the reasons I decided to go first last year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> I, I said, I do, not, I do not want to follow up Sam Abel. I don't want yeah. to follow up Martha Meyerson. I don't go to Gerd Ludwig. It's like, there's no way I want to follow up any of those people. So let me just get it done with, mm-hmm. and I can enjoy the the rest of the presentation. So I was thinking the same thing towards the end of the season. I was like, "Thank God I went early on in this thing because I don't belong <laughs> in this group of people." I mean, dang, it's great to be a part of it. I wouldn't say that your work is just amazing, though. I have to say that you're probably the craziest f- physicist I've ever had on the show. <laughs> How many other physicists have you had? I'm curious. <laughs> Not to you're know. the first. Okay. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> an easy club to be in. Then, heck, crazy is my middle name. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. The stuff I, I do is no more risky than driving your car. I mean, that's the the thing that people don't really realize. Though I do have a lot of near death stories, so maybe it's not true. Yeah, I don't have a thing with heights. I have a certain certain thing with certain types of heights. Like I'll get on top of my roof, Mm -hmm. not a problem. Yeah. But if I go to a location where uh, there's like an edge Mm -hmm. and then a drop, I'm very conservative about how far (laughs) close I get to that edge. And I see these people that will sit on the edge of a cliff for the for selfie or yeah. And I'm like going, no. Well, they're not no, so intelligent. I mean, I used to be a rock climbing guide and I always used to tell everybody like everybody's afraid of heights. It's just how far off the ground you've got to get them for them to realize they're afraid of heights. You know? oh, yeah. So when you approach the edge of El Cap and there's 3,300 feet of air below you, everybody's conservative, just like you're talking about. Oh, yeah. oh good, good. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> well, I'm being sensible. You are. And my girlfriend's deathly afraid of heights. So it's kind of funny. Everybody's afraid. You just got to push past those fears in some ways. But you, but you, you get sort of even before the photography with the rock climbing. So what sparked that interest? I was in university and uh, 
you know, I'd done outdoor things as a kid, but I was never really into the outdoors that much. I was in Texas at University of Texas at Austin. I saw these rock climbing classes that the university was offering. And I thought, you know, that could be interesting. And also there was in one of my classes, I took this class, Mountain Geoecology. And the guy in front of me every day and every other day in class was this climbing dude. And every Monday he came in with these epic stories of like adventure out on the cliffs. And after hearing this for a couple of months, I thought I should maybe ask him if he would take me out, you know, not having any clue what I was getting into. Though I did read a bunch of adventure books as a kid. I was really had an adventurous mind and I dreamt a lot about adventure, but never had opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I asked him one day and we ended up climbing together for 10 days out near El Paso at a world-class climbing area. And he turned out to be this like really incredible Knowles guide. So National Outdoor Leadership Tool is like outward bound, but for people who are really serious about the outdoors. And so I got to learn rock climbing from like an incredible expert for free. And then I got the bug and that was it. That's partly why I left physics, because I was like, I can't stay in a lab anymore if I, I want to go out there and climb. So You get a bigger rush. Yeah, I mean, kind of. Um, I've actually had, a, it's not adrenaline, it's a dopamine hit. So it's similar to cocaine. I've done, I've researched the science on the chemicals in the brain that come about oh, from really? some of these sports. And they're not adrenaline sports. Technically, adrenaline is when something really goes wrong, like, like when you're in a car crash or you see a car crash right in front of you or something epic happen that's an adrenaline rush is like your body telling you that this is an incredibly dangerous situation and you need to do something right now if you have that in climbing Mm. then things are bad let's put it that way um but the dopamine dopamine is not that much different than adrenaline it's just a very small secreted thing that it's like being high on drugs to some degree not that i know that well because i've never done some of that stuff so but there is a certain feeling you get you know an enlightened experience of some sort. Do you experience that when you're photographing? Sometimes when it's good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's honestly probably why I love photographing this stuff is because I'm not just there as a viewer. I'm most of the times a participant, either hanging off a cliff or sitting on a jet ski or swimming in the ocean or whatever I'm doing. I'm a participant in the sport itself so that, you know, you feel like part of the team and you're also sometimes taking a lot more risk than the athlete that you're working with or whoever you're working with. Yeah. I was talking to Matthew Jordan Smith uh, yesterday. We were talking about sort of the thrill of the collaboration Mm -hmm. that for him, that's a big part of what he loves, what he does. Uh, It's not just the making of the image. It's, it's the memories that are created by working with a group of people. It sounds that uh, that's the same for you. Very similar. Yeah. I mean, man, his work is amazing. He's another hero of mine that's creating, has created and is still creating epic, amazing work. What a treat to see that the other night. Yeah. But for me, for sure. I mean, in some ways the images are great, but they're, they're not the reason. I mean, they are the reason I'm doing it, but I've definitely had athletes call me out when we're hanging on a cliff or wherever we're at. And they're like, are you okay? Cause you're very excited. You're, they can tell when things are going well, because I am just, guns blazing, just like so excited about what's happening in the camera, in the frame, what I'm seeing, what we're getting. And and partly I'm trying to impart that excitement to them. Not that they really need it because they're having a lot of fun, hopefully doing what they're doing. And oftentimes it's a collaboration where they're so passionate about what they do. And I'm so passionate about what I do. You know, 
if it's a sport, say like wingsuit base jumping, where I'm not a base jumper, I'm not a skydiver, even though it looks fun, but I can connect with their passion for their sport. And I've worked with them enough that when I show up, they're like, oh man, it's a, such a collaboration of they come up with these crazy ideas. And, you know, the company Red Bull that we work with has the budget to make those happen that it's just, they know we're going to get these amazing images for them and for me and for everybody. So there's this massive collaboration that gets, it can be a blast. I don't know. Yeah, that, red, that, red Bull, that Red Bull Air Force is insane. The things I've seen them do are just yeah. out of this world. Well, much less photographing. That's the world's most dangerous around. sport, you know, by far. And they're a blast to hang out with because, you know, when you get an assignment with them, it's going to be out there. What was the first one that you, you did with them? Uh, let's see. What was it? I think they were jumping off a 3,000 foot cliff in Utah, southern Utah, in the middle of nowhere. And they don't want me to say the name of the cliff because mm-hmm. it's pretty dicey. And I spent four days with them and we got to the top. We had helicopters. We had the whole shebang. And they jumped, I think, each jumped three times. But literally, they jump and you have one second before they're just a dot in the valley below. So I had nine seconds for the entire assignment for action pictures. (laughs) (laughs) So so I had three pressure. (laughs) No pressure. It was my first assignment with them, you know. And there's always this thing whenever you shoot adventure sports. I I don't know that it's quite the same in the normal sports world. You have to kind of prove yourself and your worth to the athletes. Mm-hmm. to show them that it's worth their time to work with you uh, because, and maybe not necessarily for the Red Bull Air Force because they've already quote unquote made it. But um, for most adventure athletes, you have to kind of prove that you're worth having you out there to photograph them and that you can further their career and or their endeavors. There's a lot of pressure um, as it with any assignment, but so I had three cameras lined up all synced together so that we could, you know, shoot it what was it? Nine frames a second on all cameras and get three different angles for each jump. And I did some crazy shenanigans where I rappelled over the edge of the cliff connected to little bushes that were like the width of my finger that wouldn't have held anything. And I didn't even rappel. I just down climbed over the edge to get to a certain position. So sometimes you're taking risks, but they really loved me because I had all these climbing skills and I could anchor them in because they were terrified of heights. And really, yeah, I mean, most of them, there was one who wasn't, but the other two, flat out told me that when they're standing on the edge of a cliff, they're just terrified until they like jump and get the wing, the wind in their wings, literally in their base, in their wingsuit, they don't feel comfortable. They're comfortable in the air. They're just not comfortable with that jump. And so I could create an anchor to clip them into. And then they thought I was the greatest thing ever and started having me on a bunch of their photo shoots. It's amazing to think that, because I would have thought that because, you know, they they have so much experience underneath their belt that and they're just so into like the preparation and mm-hmm. the technical stuff that the fear may be there, but not that it's so, so visceral, even even at that moment. I mean, if they hadn't told me that, I probably wouldn't have noticed. Yeah. So, you know, those situations where there's high risk, everybody becomes really honest with each other is yeah. a good thing. And it wasn't like they were mortified to the point that they couldn't move it's just that's where they felt the least comfortable i should put it that way maybe instead of terrified well a lot of the athletes that you you photograph are are you know pushing the extremes of their respective sports Mm -hmm. so they all have to face their their fears so 
photographing them, spending time with them, talking with them has probably taught you a lot about how how you see and and process fear. So how has that sort of shaped you? Wow, you just opened up the can. This is my favorite topic, fear. I mean, and this is honestly why I shoot adventure sports. It's not, it is a cool thing and it's very, it's amazing to be out there and see these amazing places I've been to. But for me, it's the mental aspect of seeing how they deal with fear Mm -hmm. and how they overcome it. Because I wouldn't really be a photographer without those early days climbing, which taught me how to deal with fears and how to overcome them. I didn't always overcome them. Sometimes I locked up and sat on a ledge 20,000 feet up on a mountain until I could get the courage to walk back down. You know, there's times where it did overcome me. Um, and so it's not just the dealing with fear part, but it's it's a whole different lifestyle and a whole different mental, I don't know, how, what's the, it's a whole different worldview is what it is, essentially, of what's possible in the world. Um, you know, name a sport, you know, people surfing 60, 70 foot waves, or the, you know, the guys jumping off cliffs with their wingsuits or base jumping or climbers free soloing stuff like Alex Honnold, they seem to the outward world crazy or insane. But what you don't see is the 20,000 jumps or the 20 years they spent going, you know, 0.3% farther, 0.3% farther. And then next, by the time you catch up with them, they're already 3,000% farther than where they started. And they're just the best in the world at what they do. So there's a very logical progression, a log- logical progression of how they deal with fear along the way. And that fear is dealt with through experience. So how, how, how do you, because, tr- you know, with the athletes, you're oftentimes thinking about, you know, the fear, that, the reasonable fear of, of losing your life, right? Mm-hmm. And, but we all experience fear on sort of a regular basis that has nothing to do with risk-taking to that degree. Mm-hmm. But fear feels so significant that it deters us from making life choices. Totally. So what have you learned from witnessing these people processing fear in these variety of different ways on that more personal level when it comes to, you know, taking a professional or personal risk of some sort and being able to move move mm-hmm. past it? It comes down to analyzing the risks and sitting down and analyzing scientifically, like these are the risks I'm up against. And analyzing each one and being like, okay, I can deal with that doing this. I can deal with this doing that, you know, and kind of walking yourself through. I mean, even being a freelance photographer, the financial risk is ridiculous to try and do this as a profession. And dealing with that, you know, through rock climbing and all the other things I've had to, you know, these adventure sports where I've been in really remote places. When you see yourself overcome these risky things so many times, it's not like you get cocky about it because that's very dangerous. You just get used to, oh, fear is a good thing. It's telling me there's something potentially dangerous here. I've done, I've dealt with it many times before, so I know I can deal with it and I'll make the correct decision, which may be to stop what you're doing and do something Mm -hmm. else or to keep moving. So in my personal life, you know, it's it's learning, just like in the physics world, learning how to solve equations, it's learning how to solve risk and learning to understand what's too far and what you know you have a 99% chance of getting through. Could you could you give me a, a specific example of a time where we did just that? Um, I mean, it's, it's become so second nature now that it's hard for me to really think about it in a concrete way. 
I mean, there's mountaineering times where you're, you're analyzing snowpack. So let's just say like a ski trip or a mountaineering trip on a big mountain in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. And you're there climbing with maybe some friends or something. And maybe it's a shoot for me or maybe it's not. Let's just say we're climbing the Himalayas. You know, you can assess, you can sit there at base camp and watch the mountain and watch the moods of the mountain. Like, are there avalanches coming down? What's happening with the mountain? Is the snowpack really soft? You can dig a pit uh, with a snow shovel to really actually look with a microscope at the snow crystals to see if there's a hoarfrost layer, which is usually where avalanches slide on. Um, So you can scientifically analyze the snowpack. And then, you know, it's also analyzing your physical capabilities. How am I doing? Am I feeling altitude issues? This, that, whatever. You know, am I physically fit to do this? And then you get on the peak and you keep analyzing the whole time. If you're climbing up steep slopes in the middle of the day and the sun's really warm, you're like, this is not safe. We need to move faster or get off of this right near and hang out until it gets dark and it gets colder so that we don't get caught in an avalanche, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's just the analytical process of analyzing the situation you're in. And so much of your work involves a lot of preparation in terms of, like you said, evaluating the conditions of the environment that, that you're going to be shooting in, your choices in terms of equipment, times of year. Mm, totally. You know, Location, yeah. All of those things. So I think that spending all that time doing the research and in preparation instills a certain degree of, of confidence and helps to, if not completely eliminate fear, it helps to diminish it, I would think. Yeah, and at least deal with it. I mean, there's definitely times when I'm scared on assignments, but you know, a lot of these things like shooting rock climbing now, it seems pretty ridiculous, but I've almost died from shooting rock climbing two or three times. I mean, like almost died, meaning I shouldn't be here, almost died that close. What's the fear? Could it be the fear of not pulling the assignment off or just the fear of just of making a mistake that'll cost you your life? The second one, making a mistake. I mean, the photography is the easiest part, honestly. Photography is super easy and it has to be because you've got to think about all the stuff we've talked about. It's not to say that I'm still not pushing, trying to create these amazing images, especially when I take strobes and all this lighting gear out there. But every time you tie into the rope, you're making sure that you tied your knot correctly. You're making sure your rope's not roaming against a really sharp rock that could cut your rope, which has happened to me once. Luckily, I didn't die. You know, or if you're swimming at Pipeline on the North Shore of Hawaii, you know, I'm a good swimmer, but that's not my world. And I'm with friends who know what they're doing, and I kind of know what I'm doing, but it's pretty exciting. And that's maybe one of the more dangerous things I've done. Yeah. But bringing it out of the adventure sports world, I did a trip with Celine Cousteau, the granddaughter of Jacques Cousteau. Her movie is actually coming out on iTunes and Amazon early next month um, called Tribes on the Edge. And she was with her grandfather in 1982 when she was, I think, eight or nine years old. And they explored the Amazon for a year. And that was part of the Cousteau series in the 80s. I saw it when I was a kid. Um, And she's been a good friend for a long time. And I went along as the still photographer on this documentary shoot deep in the Amazon where we were photographing and doing this, you know, documentary video on some of these tribes who have only recently been contacted. So they've only seen outsiders maybe a couple times. And that was by far the most dangerous thing I've ever done because there were so many dangers. I didn't even know what they were like getting eaten by an anaconda that's 60 feet long. Blink of an eye, you're gone. 
you know, getting shot in the head by an arrow by an uncontacted tribe. And this was the largest area of uncontacted tribes in the world with 22 uncontacted tribes in this area the size of Austria. I didn't talk about this in my evenings with the master's talk because it was just so far off topic. And it's like its own separate talk. But I mean, and then the heat, it's like 108 degrees and 100% humidity all the time. So that was, and it's just because, you know, on my trips, I can foretell the dangers and I can kind of see like, well, this is what I'm dealing with. So I can assess the risk on that trip. I had no clue. And even if you have a clue, there's nothing you can do about it. Other than put your trust in the people that you're with, I would think. Yeah. But I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many dangers like jaguars could just like snatch you up. Our anthropologist got bit by a five foot pit viper. I mean, the teeth Uh. were four inches long and two inches apart. I mean, these were, this is like some kind of crazy reptile that just came up and nailed you in the leg. And she was very lucky to live. Anyway, How long were you guys there? I think it was a total of six weeks over two summers. Six so weeks. three weeks wow. each time. It was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, National Geographic, I'll go on the record. If Nat Geo calls and wants to send me the Amazon and it's got a million dollars in their pocket, I'm like, call somebody else because I'm not going back. Yeah, I've seen that they have National, National Geographic photographers have a site where they put up all the things that they have to endure mm-hmm. in, in terms of uh, for shoots. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. Some of those pictures, Joel Sartori with his like bites all over him. I mean, oh, man. Yeah, I've seen that footage of I forget the the photographer who was in this tall tree that he set up a little sort of a basically a scaffold for which to be in order to photograph a particularly rare bird. Mm -hmm. And he was up there for God knows how many weeks just to get. Yeah, one photograph, picture. <laughs> one picture, right? Or or when those guys go to Alaska and the mosquitoes are like a sheet oh, yeah. of, and you just you wipe your arm and it's just. I have been that guy. I have been that guy in Alaska. It is <sighs> brutal, and you're just That's eating. Cool. They're not even mosquitoes. They're like giant bat black flies, and when they bite, they take a chunk out of your arm. No, no, mosquitoes love me. They're like they're waiting. When I go to the Dominican Republic, it's like they they email it, they text each other. <laughs> He's coming. He's coming. <laughs> as soon as Mario I get off the plane. Fresh meat. Yeah, I mean, I I wonder how much easier life would be if I could just show up at a studio and take portraits, even though I'm not, you know, I'm not Greg Gorman. I don't have the personality or the the capability to interact with people on the level of the good, the amazing portrait photographers, but that just sounds so easy in terms of physicality, not in terms of yeah. producing the images. But you're known a lot because of the work that you, you, you do with, with, your, with your strobes on these locations. Mm-hmm. But you didn't start off knowing all this stuff about, about strobe. And no. it was on the recommendation of an editor that you start learning light so that you could take portraits that spurred you to start incorporating that into your repertoire. Uh, but talk about the, you know, that, those early times in terms of learning learning how to use these lights because it's it's kind of along the lines in terms of the topic that we're talking about it's like you're going into something you don't know exactly how to do it mm-hmm. there may be some sort of veer a uh, fear self-consciousness anxiety about it and and how you sort of use this way of thinking that you, we've been talking about to learning how to use strobes effectively well, it was Rob Haggart who runs the photoeditor.com yeah. website that he used mm-hmm. to work well outside magazines here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I used to meet with him 
every so often. And he was the one who was like, look, kid, you got to learn how to take portraits because I can't hire you. You know, if you can only shoot action, then you can't shoot a whole assignment for me. And I was, you know, I was very shy early on in my career. That's something I've had to overcome and deal with another fear of sorts. Um, and that was the impetus. It's like, okay, I got to get on this if I want to make this a career. And I, the first half of my career, first third at this point was in the film world. So in the film world, it's much more difficult to learn lighting than it is with digital um, because you have to pay for a lot of film and mess up massively. And you have to really know how to use a light meter to actually get anything useful. So it was, you know, two or three years of plugging away, but previous to like trying lighting, I mean, I was terrified of flash because as a natural light photographer shooting film, I mean, you just have no idea if it's going to turn out or what's going to happen. So you have to spend the time to just really get into it and mess up and fail a lot and hopefully not on assignment, but on your own time. Yeah. And then in the midst of that, Nikon came out with the, I think it was the D2X at the time, which I deemed good enough for me to start shooting digital. And that really helped um, with the flash stuff to really learn quicker um, because you could see the image so quickly. You could be like, oh, okay, this is what I did wrong. And this is how I can fix it. And so digital is definitely, I mean, as it has been for everybody, a great improvement in the learning curve. And then I, you know, as a professional photographer, it's the same for you. I'm sure you keep pushing because I keep learning. This is maybe the physicist in me who says, you know, and my father's a professor at a university. So, you know, he's always, you know, if you're going to do something, do it right and know everything about it. And so mm -hmm. that has been part of my career is any and everything that I didn't fully understand. I just headlong threw myself into that so I could understand it. I mean, whether it's printing or flash or post-production, you know, Lightroom, Photoshop, that stuff. I could certainly be better at Photoshop maybe, but, you know, I just seek out all that stuff. And flash was one of those things. It's like, let's see how far we can push this. And especially in my genre, sorry, I'm going on and on here. No, it's uh, podcasting. It's perfectly <laughs> permissive. I started, well, I think it was HyperSync came out and that was a new flash technology that allowed you to sync strobes at any shutter speed or almost any right. shutter speed. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about this, like, wow, can I, how, how far can I push this to like light up these athletes from a distance and found out I could overpower the sun from like 40 or 50 feet away. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. This has never been done before. And so I kept pushing that. And then I started, I was sponsored by a Lincrome at that time too. And that helped them develop a strobe that could even push this further. And so that was kind of, how I got the progression of the lighting. And along the same lines, I also kept working on my portraiture, you know, and I, maybe now I feel like I'm halfway decent. I can produce pretty high-end portraiture, but it's still a, a, something you have to work at. It's not like it's taken a long time. And lighting, as you know, it's not a, like you learn lighting and you're done. It's like a oh, lifetime yeah. of learning, you know, and you never stop learning. I've owned many cameras, upgrading to a new model or changing to a complete new system on numerous occasions. I don't want to think of the thousands of dollars I've spent on cameras, lenses, straps, bags, and other accessories to further my passion for photography, much of which I either don't use or don't own anymore. That's not to say that money was wasted. I put it all to good use. At least I'd like to think so. 
But when thinking in terms of return on investment, I have to say that it's my collection of photo books that have provided me the greatest value. Those books have served as my photo education, with some of those titles having been in my collection for decades. Those books have inspired me and taught me so much about how to see and what's possible with the camera. A great photo book is a treasure that will never lose its value. It's one of the reasons why I brought on Charcoal Book Club as a sponsor, because I believe in the work that they're doing to bring great photography books to people who love photography. They curate and offer books from great contemporary photographers. And as part of your membership, each month, you'll receive a copy of a new book and a collectible print to add to your collection. It's a wonderful thing to look forward to each and every month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. And if you're not feeling that month's selection, you can swap it out for a different one of a similar value. Visit their website to see what they've offered in the past and what you have to look forward to. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout to receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And thanks to the many of you who support The Candid Frame financially each month. Your contributions make everything that we do possible, especially bringing you an episode every week. You may be thinking that you don't need to because someone else does, but the reality is that of the thousands of people who listen to this show each week, very few contribute to the show. So if you've been thinking about it, why not finally become a Patreon supporter today? It's easy to do. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the frame. Just $5 a month from you would make a big difference. Thank you as always for your support. You know, you you do a lot of commercial work, but a lot of the stuff that you've created for yourself has been like self-assigned, mm-hmm. providing you the opportunity to learn all all that yeah. stuff. So, talk to me about the importance of that in your in your career, and how you've sort of leveraged those those images that you've created to procure you you know business and opportunities. Well, early on in my career, you know, nobody gives you an assignment when you're starting out, so. If I wanted to be a photographer, I had to go out and shoot whatever with my friends. Um, and then I would license the images after the fact. And it was it was probably around year 10 or 12 of my career, early 2000s, 2003, 2004, when I started realizing that my best images were either from clients that really gave me a lot of freedom or stuff I went out and did myself. And so that was solidifying this thing. And lots of people were telling me, like, you got to have personal work. But for me, my personal work is wrapped up in my commercial work because it's all kind of personal. It's all the the stuff I would want to be shooting, whether I was being hired for it or not. Especially with the strobes, I started doing a lot of testing and then I kept pushing and pushing. And that's like the first ice climbing shots that I let with strobes. I didn't know they were going to be, I didn't even know if they'd turn out. It was an experiment just to go out there. And I paid an athlete who's the best female ice climber in the United States and these epic images came out of it. They weren't exactly what I had in my head, but that made a lot of people sit up and pay attention to my work. 
And when I saw that reaction, I was like, wow, I need to do more of this. And then also on the portraiture front, you know, I started getting assignments for portraiture because I had much better portraits on my website. And actually, that's the most difficult genre for sure, I think, yeah. because it's difficult to get a solid portrait and to do it really well. I took lots of workshops along the way, I must say, from Joe McNally, Albert Watson, Andrew Eccles. I assisted him for a couple of weeks. You know, I went to a bunch of people that were masters at lighting and said, hey, how's this work? And, you know, learned from them. Yeah, I think I've been gathering a bunch of books during the COVID time. About a, probably a third of them um, are from photographers who specialize in portraiture. And and for me, it's, it's when I look at those photographs, it's not so much the lighting that fascinates me mm -hmm. as it is as they're able to elicit something from from the subject or the collaboration from the subject that uh, I don't see typically when I look at images that people are posting on their websites or on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. It's like there's something missing from the great majority of photographs that I see online. And when I look through these books, it's like, and, and, and it's not just that they're working prof with professional models, right? Sometimes they're just working with normal everyday people mm -hmm. and they're still able to elicit that. That's something. I'm, re I'm yeah. reading the, the biography of Richard Avedon right now yeah. that came out a couple of months ago. It's just really kind of fascinating in terms of being able to be that observant mm -hmm. that you see the moment revealed to you and then you make make the shot. Mm -hmm. You know, because Avedon was often working with, you know, medium format. So he would be like right next to the camera observing the subject and then Making not, the even looking through the looking, camera. not yeah. even looking through the camera and to be able to be that attuned with the subject. Mm -hmm. That for me is, is that's a fine art. Totally. I mean, I've had, I always think of, I I've only met Dan Winters once. I knew him through a friend. He came to Santa Fe for a book signing. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the best 20 minute conversations I've ever had in my life. And that made me understand why he's such a great portrait photographer, because if he can make me feel that comfortable in 20 minutes, not that it's your job to make somebody feel comfortable, but just the way he interacts with you, you're like, wow, forget about yeah. the camera. I mean, that's the talent right there. The camera is the easy part for him, I'm sure. I spent three days with him recording a conversation for, for a project. So, so eight hours a day with Dan and <laughs> wow. just talking. And it's like, I don't I'm have jealous. to say anything. I just have to hit record. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> Such a cool guy. Man. Well, you just mentioned the the ice climbing, which I know you have a real affinity for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you've had the opportunity to practice a lot of other sports, what's the fascination with ice climbing? What makes it that a unique experience for you? I mean, I think it's just it's the ice itself, like a frozen waterfall. Like, hey, how many people have actually seen a frozen waterfall in person? It's not something you run across every day. You probably have to seek it out. So it feels like you shouldn't even be there, a eh? And then you've got like these razor sharp ice tools and crampons on your feet. So you're like kicking and stabbing this thing and hanging off these tools. That's just a crazy nutball sport, but it's so <laughs> much fun. And I mean, there's moments you catch yourself where you're like hanging off your tools and you look down and you're just like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but this is the coolest thing I've ever done. You know, and it's, I don't know, there's something, it's very masochistic. It is dangerous to a certain degree, but, you know, it's not as dangerous as a lot of these other things we do. 
I, I can imagine just because of the reflectivity of the of the ice and all that other stuff that it must be a mother to shoot. Well, usually they're in the shade because you don't typically climb ice in the sun um, because it starts to melt. Um, yeah. And that can be problematic. Good thinking right there. <laughs> so that helps. <laughs> not quite as reflective. Um, you know, but if I'm using flash, like we talked about earlier, I have to be careful where I put the flash. Otherwise, you're just going to get a giant, you know, mirror reflection of your light. Uh, it's just a beautiful sport. It's, you know, a mini version of mountaineering. And it usually involves a long hike to get to this ice climb out in the middle of nowhere. A long hike out after you're done. Yeah, and so many of your locations are not just off, are not just a couple of steps from the parking lot, right? Yeah. So you're taking an incredible amount of gear with you. You not only, you know, camera equipment, lighting equipment, camping equipment, you know, it's and you go to a destination where you don't go, oh, I forgot the sink cable, right? Yeah. Talk about all the preparation that that's involved and, and talk about the teams that you work with in order to pull some of these images off. Yeah, it seems like, you know, the farther I go down the, the lighting rabbit hole with the high sync stuff, which is an extension of the hypersync, you know, I, I can't do a shoot without like four or 500 pounds of lighting gear these days. And then it becomes the question, well, we've got to hike for three hours with this stuff and go down a thousand foot cliff to shoot like this, say, whitewater kayaking like I did for a Lincrum on one of those shoots, who's the Swiss manufacturer of these strobes. And so you end up having two or three assistants, not necessarily to do anything for you, except to carry gear in. And if there's a video crew, which it seems like most of my big shoots these days always have a small video crew, um, you know, you end up with six to seven people minimum plus the athletes. So it's not a small affair. And, you know, for these bigger shoots like this, where it might be a two or three day shoot, you're working with the athlete to figure out the location because the location's at least half the picture. You know, you got to use that location to really set the the tone for the image and show the risks that the athlete is taking. Um, and then you have to figure out how you're going to get the gear down there. And you usually take multiples of everything or at least multiples of the critical stuff. Um, same for the video crew. And then you got to experience, you know, you have to get experienced athletes who I'm not really worried about if they know anything about photography. I don't, it doesn't matter if they know anything about photography. I'm just worried if they know the outdoors and they're not going to stumble on a rock and fall off a cliff. So I want them to be like, you know, yeah. tried and true outdoors people and can carry a big pack. I mean, that's my assistant, my test for assistance, pick up this hundred pound bag, carry it over there, carry it back. You're hired. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> I can teach you everything else you need to know how to set up the flash and all that jazz. And then, you know, you go in there and you, you plan it and you organize the days. If it's a multi-day shoot in order of risk, I think. So that kayaking assignment I did, I think it was 2017. It was with Red Bull and Alinchrome, the strobe manufacturer, shooting images for one of their new strobes that I helped them design. You know, we organized it. So the greatest risk was at the end of the assignment. We shot mostly portraits and lifestyle stuff the first day, even though I hate the word lifestyle, just the mundane stuff where they're not taking huge risks. Yeah. And then as it kept going, we gradually increased the risk. A, so that if something happened, we still had something in the can before something happened, but also just for us to wrap our head around the location and really get used to stuff and see it and think through stuff. And there's lots of pre-planning in terms of the type of images we want to get before we get to a location. And I typically, we did a day of scouting before it as well, before any shooting happened. So we walked all over the place just so I could see it and make sure the ideas I had matched with what we could actually pull off yeah. 
And then there's opportunities that happen while you're there. Like on that shoot, people can go to my website and watch the behind the scenes video, um, you know, rappelling in behind a hundred foot waterfall curtain was crazy position. It was like going to another planet, but that was just a cool add on. The images didn't really get used, but it was a pretty cool, one of the coolest things about that whole assignment for me, at least something yeah. new and different. You know, because of the nature of the things that you have to go through in order to make your images, you know, there's not an uh, innumerable number of people doing the kind of work that you do, but you still have to, you still have to do what you need to do in terms of your marketing, getting your name out there in order to make sure that you're on the top names on the list to get contacted. Exactly. When So t talk about, about that, what you do in terms of making sure that you're your name is on the forefront of anybody's consideration. That's the tough part of being a, the professional photography industry is getting jobs. I mean, um, and honestly, that's why I do this wacky lighting because nobody's crazy enough to go out there and replicate these images or, you know, or some people are doing it, but they're not pushing it to this degree. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also because they have the budgets to afford to be able to hire these people to help me do this. So it becomes a bigger production than just me out there with the athletes. You know, it's it's just word of mouth, marketing, you know, your website, Instagram these days, connecting with clients, having a, this is going to be my 26th year as an adventure photographer. And to be honest, there's many adventure photographers, you know, there's probably 20 to 30 of us doing exceptional work. You're hopefully in the mix all the time at this level where I'm at right now. But, you know, certain people are better for certain jobs. So I get the jobs where I'm a good fit for them. And I would get the jobs where clients see that lighting or they see something I can do that nobody else does. You know, just like Greg Gorman or Dan Winters or any of these top portrait photographers, their work stands out and they're unique. Mm -hmm. So they get hired because of that. And I hope that's the case for me. I think it is. And you just keep pushing gently on the marketing fronts, you know, connecting with people and see what happens. And I think El Heather Elder said it. I was actually talking to somebody this morning. Heather Elder had a quote that, you know, photographers in the advertising world, there's two things they need to be doing, shooting new work and then getting out there and networking with that new work. And that's essentially the business. Yeah. I mean, you, if the work's not good, then you're not going to get that much work. But if the work really stands out, then, you know, hopefully stuff comes to you. So how have you been spending, you know, the last eight or nine months as we've been dealing with the pandemic? How have you leveraged that time? Um, it's been busy for parts of it. Um, September, October, and early November were incredibly busy for me, traveling around mostly New Mexico, uh, one trip to California for a big shoot. Um, the rest of the time, we've been under pretty strict lockdown here in New Mexico, which has been good because serious issues with COVID. So here at home, I've been doing lots of interviews. I've been speaking for clients, you know, not doing that much marketing because Every client I call up, they're like, our budget just got slashed 70%. Yeah. So this is the wrong time to like start asking for jobs. It's just, you know, luckily I have savings and luckily some of my clients have been really good to me in the last year to help support me, um, doing things for them, whatever I can to help them with new launches of products or whatever, speaking at festivals, online Zoom stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, working... I've been learning other different things like video stuff Been playing a lot around with video to really up my game on that front. And I do maybe 20 or 30% of my business is doing video, but I usually act as director, not as 
camera. I usually have a crew that I'm working with to create video, but you know, playing with different techniques and seeing how the technology is evolving with my I, the Fujifilm GFX 100 using that for video, like medium format 4K, playing around, learning a little bit more about video editing. So basically, just trying to keep learning. But it's also a time where I'm just, you know, we're all at home. So yeah. just relax. And I think this is something from the adventure world because I've been on a lot of mountaineering trips or a lot of trips where the weather's just horrendous. And you just have to sit in the tent. That's your job. Like, yeah. don't get too crazy about trying to think you're going to go out there and do something in a hurricane or a full-on whiteout sideways blizzard. You know, I spent a month in a tent in Alaska once and read the Brothers Karamazov, and that's what we did. We skied around for like three hours on two nights of that month, and that was the entire trip. Wow. And we had a rope to go to the bathroom because if you weren't holding on the rope, you could walk away from that rope and never come back in a whiteout. So I learned a lot of things about, you know, just chill out. So I've been playing lots of guitar, exploring other creative things. I see a printer behind you. You've been doing much printing? A bit, yeah. I'm actually, the last three or four years, I've been trying to print multiple prints of all of my best work. So I have a print archive. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an ongoing project. So it's really cool to see big prints of all of your stuff. It's a lot of storage space, but, you know. It's- yeah, that's one of the things I, I have to start working on. Because I saw the printing class that you did uh, through with George, mm-hmm. you know, and heard really good things uh, about that. But yeah, because I, I got access to the large printers at work. And so yeah. I've been playing with them because I never really have printed to a great degree. But now that I have access to all that stuff, it's just like learning the workflow mm-hmm. so I can do it consistently. Because I can make one of the biggest printers produces like a 40-inch wide print. Wow. So I can make I can make it pretty big. Yeah. That gets the thing, like you said. <laughs> <laughs> that gets expensive fast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer uh, for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Wow, man, that's a great question. Uh, You've interviewed so many people. I have a feeling half the people I would throw out there, you've probably already interviewed, but do you want somebody from the adventure world or do you want somebody? It could be anybody. Yeah. This anybody. is just for people that, do, you know, go check out their work on the website. Not necessarily that I'll interview. Yeah. My buddy, Christian Pondella is one of the best ski photographers in the world. I'll call him out. Is it okay if I throw out a couple names here? Go ahead. Yeah. Tristan Chu from France. He's a adventure photographer, paragliding photography, does some wild stuff for sure. Jamie Stillings. If you don't know Jamie Stillings, you've probably interviewed Jamie, I'm guessing, but he's yeah. down the street from me. He's one of the best photographers I know personally. Oh, cool. well, thanks for world. Me. Yeah. Well, thanks for making time for me today, Michael. Enjoy. Thank you. Finally have a chance to have a proper sit down with you. Definitely. Well, let's catch up again soon if you have time. Thanks to Michael for joining us. Find out more about Michael and his work by visiting michaelclarkphoto.com. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. Thanks to Luke Meister from Canada for his five-star review. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you 
while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Mike Schultz for his recent contribution. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge in another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.